there's hope, man, you know, and we have to have it. And I can't, I can tell you as a person, I go down those same dark tunnels as everybody else. But at the end of the day, to have hope, you have to seek places out to have hope and get out there and see it. You know, we, we, we're not going to be successful if we don't have the hope. That was John McMillan talking about hope and the importance for steelhead. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode 117. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I wanted to give a quick shout-out to Echo Fly Rods, which has been my go-to spay rod for steelhead for quite some time. Go to wetflyswing.com slash echo, that's E-C-H-O, to uh, find out how to purchase the rod I know and trust. Plus, you'll get a free fly line with your purchase today. The podcast will get a small commission at no extra charge to you if you purchase through that link. This is a great way to support the show and one of the great companies in fly fishing. In today's episode, I talk with John McMillan, one of the big names in steelhead protection and uh, and in recovery today. John talks about the long-term trends in steelhead and when we might see a change in the current uh, trajectory, the effect of dams on rivers, and the biggest lessons he's learned from his dad. We hear about uh, John's best tips and how you can get involved. Don't miss this one as John talks about the Columbia River and some of the wild fish concerns uh, he has on mind moving forward. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the Angler's Magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. They are committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly tying and fly fishing. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started today by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. So, without further ado, here's John McMillan at Rainforest Steel on Instagram. How's it going, John? Good. How about you, Dave? Good. Good uh, Good to finally get you on the show here. Um, you know, definitely we've been chatting about this a while, and I... Uh, just recently saw you on the uh, the Barbless podcast, which I've been chatting uh, chatting with Chad and and Nick and those guys recently. So it's good to hear you're getting out there, and you got some big news. We're gonna we're gonna share a little bit later. I'll kind of hold that for people to they'll have to stick around to hear the big news that you got covered, which I think is really amazing. Um, but before we get into everything on steelhead, you know, you're obviously an expert in the steelhead life history and, and some of that stuff. Can you talk about how you first got into uh, fly fishing and and then how you brought that into working with TU? Ah, sure, Dave. Um, so, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was just kind of born into the fishing for steelhead world. You know, my, my dad, my grandfather was a steelhead angler. My dad was a steelhead angler. And so I think that, you know, it's just being born into it. And I grew up on the banks of the Washougal river in Southwest Washington. And literally at high water, I could probably pee out the window of my bedroom and hit the river so it was it was right there in our backyard so as a kid growing growing up kind of out in the middle of nowhere you know Washougal was a small town in the 70s and uh, we lived about 10 miles out of town so you know most of my summer days as a child were spent you know walking around with my dad trying to fish or trying to observe fish and watching him fish like I remember spending just countless hours as a young boy sitting there on the riverbank watching my father 
swing a fly through runs to try and catch steelhead or salmon or whatever he was fishing for. So it just kind of became ingrained in me um, that fishing was, you know, a part of life in our culture in the Pacific Northwest. And um, so I I knew as kind of a little kid, right, that I wanted to study fish or birds. I wasn't Hmm. sure which one. My And I had that decision because, you know, my dad studied steelhead and he was very well known for being a fly fishing angler. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll study birds. And, and, uh, but it ended up that steelhead, of course, rose to the top eventually in my life. And so I went to college, you know, got a undergrad degree in hydrology. And then I went back to grad school and got a, you know, a higher level degree in fishery science. And, um, so for pretty much the last 22 years, I've been working professionally as a fish biologist with different groups. Um, and my latest gig has been with uh, Trout Unlimited, and I'm now the science director for the Wild Steelhead Initiative. And so I felt that was a really good mix because most of the science that I was doing, like before I worked for TU, I, was, I worked for about seven years on the LWA as a research scientist with NIMS. Mm-hmm. And that was an awesome job, but I really came back believing, you know, after all the research work that I'd done that I preferred, you know, being part of a conservation organization that was going to implement and apply the good science that is out there to ensure that the next generation has steelhead to fish for, you know, I am, I don't have kids and I am not going to have kids, but a lot of the work I am doing is trying to ensure that someone else's children has the ability to fish for steelhead in the coming decades. So yeah. that's really why I wanted to work for TU. I felt like, you know, government agencies do a fine job doing research and in some cases managing the fish. But I really did want to advocate for things that I thought policy was missing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's amazing when you talk there about that, like, uh, you know, 20 things come up to me and, and, uh, you know, I want to keep this a little focused on, on steelhead. And I think that's good because that's, you know, your experience there. Um, you know, before we jump in and I'm not going to go deep into the biology of, of steelhead because you've covered that on, I'll put a link in the show notes to, um, you know, I guess you did cover a little bit on the barless show, but, um, you know, and maybe if there's some resources, I'll cover that. We're not going to go deep into that, but today I wanted to talk about just generally the status of steelhead, you know, you know, how things are going, where we're headed, what people can do, you know, because it seems like, uh, you know, uh, there's a big struggle out there. Can you, can you do some of that? Yeah, absolutely, Dave. And and, uh, John, before you, before you get started, I just had one question um, and it it lines right along with that question. And this is an article that recently came out in the Drake magazine. Um, I think it was the recent issue. And, you know, Tom By wrote an article. It was only a couple-page little article, but he basically did a sum- – well, it wasn't a summary, but he talked about the steelhead runs in the Columbia Basin and how I think this year they dip below 100,000, you know, over Bonneville or whatever. And, um, you know, it's kind of – it's only dipped below 100,000, I think, two times in the last whatever it was, 50 or 100 years, you know. And can you – maybe you could clarify my stats on that, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, like where we're at now and if those numbers and how, and how we're doing and, and, and kind of a little status update? Sure. You know, and I think, you know, this is really interesting. It's an interesting time to be a steelheader because you're right. You hit on, you know, I think a lot of us are aware that the Columbia and the Snake River this year had some of its poorest returns on on record for steelhead, uh, both hatchery and wild. So 
nobody appeared to kind of escape the uh, the challenges of surviving to adulthood this year. So yeah, the the Columbia and the snake looked really bad. Uh, you're right, not not a hundred thousand fish passed over, and this is the first year that I can remember um, that the uh, to put a little good news in there. So yeah. it's a lot of bad news because the run sizes are bad, but there is a, a a little bit of good news in there, and that's what I'm going to try and balance when I talk about this is. There is certainly some bad news, but there is also some good news. And Perfect. I think that's kind of steel heading, right? Yeah. <laughs> you wake up every morning hopeful that you're going to hook one. And the reality at the end of the day might be that you went two or three days without hooking one. Right. But then you have those days where you hook a couple and it feels awesome again. So um, I would say, yeah, the Columbia and the snake runs are very poor, um, you know. But the the good news, the the little bit of hope in there is that for the first time that I remember, the number of wild fish crossing Bonneville – was almost that of the number of hatchery steelhead crossing mm. Bonneville. And so this is an interesting pattern because uh, we came up with an estimate for how many hatchery smolts are released in the Columbia and the Snake, and I can't remember what it is offhand, yeah. but it's over 10 million, over 10 million hatchery steelhead smolts, and it's, it's probably higher than that. But anyway, that's a lot of steelhead mm. smolts, and it's really unlikely that we are producing anywhere close to that many wild smolts. So when you think about yeah. the return on the investment for hatchery and wild in the Columbia, the hatchery, the hatchery run was really, really bad, a really bad return on that investment. But the wild fish, while they also struggled, their depletion was not close to the level that we saw in the hatchery fish, right? So that 37,000 wild fish number going over Bonneville, it's not a really good number, Um Yep. But it suggests that the survival of wild fish from smolt to adult was much higher than it was for hatchery fish. That's awesome. Uh, so that's a good sign for us. But I think you're right. When you look across the Pacific Rim this summer, something really happened at a much broader, you know, kind of what we would call a global scale. Because I think the Skeena River this year est was estimated to only per only have a run size of like 16 or 17,000 wild steelhead. And that is one of its lowest run sizes on record. And its period of record extends back for much yeah. longer periods than many of our runs. You know, we're going back into the fifties and sixties for a lot of that data. So that's a very small run for a, a, a system as large as the Skeena. I know the Dean river had a poor run mm -hmm. uh, up here on the Olympic peninsula and uh, where I'm familiar with, our runs of hatchery and wild summer steelhead looked really bad. Same thing in Puget Sound. Um, you get to the Columbia, the snake, it didn't look good. And it didn't look very good for much of the Oregon coast, although I did hear the Klamath uh, had some pretty good fishing this fall. So maybe once you get a little bit down into the southern part of that range where steelhead aren't always migrating up north because steelhead out of the Klamath aren't migrating up to Alaska like fish out of Puget Sound and BC, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're hanging more out there in the open ocean off the coast of Oregon and Northern California and that current. So um, there might've been something there and I'm not sure because we don't have really good estimates of run size no. for most of our summer steelhead. These are just kind of guesses, you know what I mean? Oh, Except yeah. for like the North Fork, Umpqua, um, you know, the Salats the the columbia and then once you get the bc and the skeena and outside of that we just really don't have a good sense but yeah what so about the op yeah, it, was the op on a similar trend as everything else 
Yeah, really bad. In fact, we hardly have any summer runs up here that are wild, right? I mean, um, most of our summer run populations on the OP have been greatly depleted. For example, the hoe probably has less than 100 fish in most years, summer runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the winter runs struggled last year, too. So the interesting thing for me is that we've had this bad return of summer runs, and now the question is, it would be really strange to all of a sudden see a really good return of winter runs because the summer runs that return this summer are from the same cohort as the winter runs that return now. Right. So the summer runs tend to return earlier than winter runs do, and then the winter runs from that same fish probably sharing same locations in the ocean are going to return this winter. Uh, and so far up on the OP, the hatchery return of steelhead to the Bogusheel hatchery has been very, very poor. But part gotcha. of that could be that we've also had a lot of really low flows to not attract, All you right. know, not bring the fish back into the river. So, yeah, we've had kind of a dry, cold winter so far. So I don't like to spread all bad news, no. though. I think there is. And I'm going to dive into one really good piece. So I, I think what this suggests is that there were clearly some things happening in the open ocean that were bad for steelhead generally overall, because it's really hard to explain that kind of common pattern across that range. Um, and some of it also could have been, you know, that, uh, that there were some freshwater conditions that maybe have impacted that, but it looks to me like it's probably a broader ocean pattern. And to give people some hope for this is that first things people need to remember is that we go through these cycles, Mm -hmm. right? I, I was, I moved, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be born in, in 1971. And as a high schooler in the mid eighties, I experienced steelhead runs that were probably never going to be matched again because we had ocean survival that was just off the charts and remarkably high. Um, and then once the early nineties came, we slid back into a trough and ocean Mm -hmm. conditions changed and the runs in the Columbia in the mid nineties for steelhead were absolutely horrible. And they were so bad that I actually left Washington and moved to Montana because I thought it was kind of the end of steelhead. You Uh, know, I I love that you're saying this, John, because, um, I just want to interrupt really quick because this is a conversation. I I want my dad to listen to this because, you know, he, I remember that time too. I was just actually getting into steelhead like really seriously in that early 90s and i remember yeah, him yeah. talking it was kind of before i was there but i remember he he talked about how he quit how he quit fishing the deschutes for a period of about i don't know what it was three or four or five years and like everybody quit fishing it and it, it was yeah. yeah and that's and you saw that not only there but we saw that throughout would you say throughout the pacific rim the same sort of thing we're seeing now it was. It was a pretty broad pattern at that time, right? That basically everybody had good survival in that mid to late eighties. And then it kind of just, you know, went downhill. And, um, yeah, I left because like, you know, I grew up in Washougal, so the Washougal fishing was bad, but I fished the Deschutes, the Klickitat, you know, all the rivers that were close to me. And, uh, they all went downhill. I moved to Montana and I realized after a year and a half, the trout just were not going to cut it as much as I love trout. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I mean, there's something about steelhead in my blood. So I came back home, uh, and decided, you know, man, I'm just going to ride this thing out. And I did. And then, you know, we got those amazing yeah. returns in the early, early two thousands to the Columbia. And a lot of anglers that are younger now have only, that was kind of when they started fishing. Right. right? 
because good returns tend to draw in anglers, right? You know, even create new anglers out of people that formerly weren't anglers, because if you can go out for a few hours and catch a fish or two, that really, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hits that hits that risk reward in your brain, right? It turns on the dopamine. So you're more likely to go back and, and sure. catch another, you know, go fishing again. So uh, those early years in the 2000s were amazing. It again appeared pretty global because we were having amazing fishing in Alaska and Canada and down here. Uh, and then, you know, after about 2014 was kind of the last hurrah, and now we're on the downside. That's it. What does that trend look yeah. like when you look at, so if you look at a graph of steelhead, and let's just, let's take the wild steelhead, because you made a really great point there on the, on the steelhead run. So with wildfish, when you look at that graph, you know, obviously it's going up and down and all around throughout the years, but you know, that trend, is is it kind of going up or is it going down or, and how, how steep is it going? Do we have a good feel for that? Well, that- you know, that's a good question. I think it depends. Like, let's use the Columbia, for example. So I'll actually go back to a couple places. So first of all, if you look at the long-term trend in the Skeena, which I think starts in the 40s, that is going up. So mm-hmm. that's a positive. Um, and it could be that climate change is just starting to have its effects on the Skeena, right? And mm-hmm. as things get warmer up there, the growing season lengthens for juvenile steelhead. But it also could be an artifact of the data because, as you know, I mean, Dave, you're, you're acutely aware you have a good science background yep. that a lot of these es- estimates in the Skeena and stuff are – there's noise around it, right? So I'm not sure how much to trust that upward trend right. uh, in the scheme of things, but it doesn't look bad. Yeah. So that's a good thing. And, you know, you look to winter runs in like the North Umpqua where we have a, another long-term data set going back to the 40s and 50s, and that looks stable. Like, you know, some bad years, some good years, but stable. The Columbia, though, is a concern because uh, I don't I don't think there is a long term. It's hard to tease out the long term uh, trends in wild steelhead because we had so many hatchery fish in the Columbia in the 70s and 80s before they were marked. Mm. Yep. That we can't really, you know. That oh, period no. of time that's really important. Yeah, that's that, that's an important time. But I would say this. If I go to places like the John Day in the middle Columbia, and it has a record going back again for a pretty long time, its trend is pretty stable. You know, overall, no yeah. no decline, no increase. And um, that that is kind of the trend I see in a lot of the all-wild rivers, right? Yeah. That there's not necessarily a long-term decline towards zero, uh, until you start to get into the places in the snake, when you start to look at those B runs, right? You know, and and the B run wild fish, yeah, they do the, the clear the, water, yeah, the clear water, which is still, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of known as one of the one of the largest runs of steelhead. Is that what? What's the quick little snippet on on the clear water for those folks that are in Idaho listening to this? Well, you know, I'm not an expert on Idaho, and it's such a unique place that I would. Yeah. I would warn people that whatever I say is is trying to guess a little bit sure. here. And if I know for sure fact, I would state it. But I would first say that the Thompson River steelhead, which swim just about as far in the Fraser, are also struggling mightily, right, down to yeah. less than 150 fish. Right. So the Thompson and the Clearwater fish are struggling. And Does the Thompson have the uh, like the dams? Does it have a similar amounts of the passage issues? issues? No, it no dams on it. Um, what I've seen from scientists up on the Thompson is that, you know, it could be that those salmon fisheries and the bycatch that they have on steelhead 
have have just been eroding at the Thompson fish for decades. Right. And now they've kind of reached a point where, you know, boy, even if a fishery might take 20 or 30, you know, fish inadvertently, that's a big chunk of the population. Gotcha. So yep. my, hunch in the, my hunch in the Thompson is that you have a long period of time where you inadvertently harvest steelhead as bycatch, and steelhead don't seem to respond well to really high harvest rates. Hmm. And so that could have eroded the population. There could be something in freshwater that I'm just not aware of. Now, and I, and I hedge the bet, there's no simple solution to all of it. It literally is these fish that are living a long ways from the ocean are dying the death of a thousand cuts oh, yeah. because they do, they do have to swim so far. And That's, by swimming that long distance, they're, they're prone to getting caught, yep. you know, sport or commercial nets. Right. Um, well, and how and much, how much reality is there to the, um, you know, still you talking about the, the cohort, you know, those juvenile fish migrating down, say the Columbia where they're going above totally. their 20 dams or whatever. And the, the cumulative effect of mortality, right. Still, I mean, uh, the dams have been uh, retrofitted and upgraded, but there's still a decent mortality, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and when I look at that, you know, some people, and, and I'm sorry, I'm down a little rabbit hole, but I think this is a great topic because it's so, because people are really concerned about bee runs now and we don't have a, a, a vision for kind of rebuilding them, right? That people, I mean, it's just kind of, we react every year to right. something that's happening. And, you know, there's arguments, for example, that have been made by some scientists that, look, the Thompson River seal are going extinct and they don't have any dams. Yeah. And so we can say that it's not the dams in the Columbia. And I would argue that's a bad comparison because there were a lot of unknown effects that were occurring on those Thompson steelhead. They're not that well monitored. And because you don't have dams, you can't track how many fish were there. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say that this whole argument over whether dams are a big problem or not is pretty clear cut with sockeye salmon in places because there's literally almost no sockeye left in redfish lake and those fish go above eight dams and the thompson or the the fraser just a few years back produced one of its largest uh, sockeye runs on record so sockeye in the upper fraser um vacillating between good and bad years but not not struggling anywhere as badly as sockeye and redfish lake right which are down to single digits in some years so yeah. the one issue i want to talk about is i think dams are a big problem in the snake river uh anytime you're asking a fish to swim that far when it traditionally ecologically would have allowed the current to carry it downstream that's a problem right that creates uh, puts more stress on juvenile fish that need to actively swim through reservoirs rather than simply be carried downstream by the river's currents as they are in rivers that are not dammed. Um, and that's one reason that dams clearly have negative impacts on smolt survival, right? I, mm -hmm. A paper I was looking at the other day is showing smolt survival for those fish could be to the mouth of the, to the mouth of the uh, Columbia can be, you know, 30, 40%, right? And that's a lot of fish. So if you're losing 50 to 70% of your fish, as they move through the system, that's a lot of mortality yeah. uh, to deal with. And I think a lot of that is attributed not just because dams are blockages, but because dams also create conditions in the river that are more favorable for predators to prey on juvenile salmon. Yeah. For example, the, the dams create those big impoundments, right? Warmer. And those big impoundments allow walleye and yeah. pike minnow and bass and catfish to all kind of thrive. You know, if that was a fast, free-flowing free river, oh, yeah. 
none of those species would be doing nearly as well as they are, and they certainly would struggle to be catching as many smolt as they are. In fact, if you had a free-flowing river, those those animals, those, those fish might be smaller in size, less abundant. So it's, there's sometimes there's a synergistic effect of dams, right? It's not just the direct mortality of trying to get through a dam. It's that they create big impoundments behind them, and those impoundments make it difficult for salmon to swim through, but they make it really good for the salmon predators to live in. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that's a great point. I well, think, yeah. I was thinking, John, I mean, I think, you, you know, you hit on, well, we've already talked about, you know, you, you go back to the 4-H. Sorry, yeah. no, no, you're good. You're good. You're doing a, a good job. I was, I was kind of bringing, you know, the 4-H is right. We've talked about the, uh, you know, the, the hatch, kind of, kind of the hatcheries, the um, the harvesting. We talked about that a little bit. You got the, you know, the the habitat loss and hydroelectric. I mean, really, we've, I guess we've talked about three of the four. The habitat loss is something, you know, that's pretty obvious as well. Um, I mean, what do you think, you know, if you... You know, if you take the dams out of the picture and say the other major, I I guess I got a couple of big questions. I mean, what is the, you know, for people out there that are listening to this, what can they do to help this thing? Because I think a lot of the people look at this and they just think like, God, what the heck do we do? You know, it it seems like, you know, we're having a bad year, but is there anything that people can do just your normal folks out there to get involved? Yeah, I think so. First, I think that, you know, freshwater habitat is always the foundation of healthy populations of salmon and steelhead. And we can't, we're not going to have strong populations for us to be able to fish for if we don't have good habitat. So the first thing I always tell people is if they want to get involved, you know, identify your local watershed or population that you really care about and get involved with a group there that's doing freshwater habitat work Mm -hmm. or some type of other work that might be interesting or, or in your wheelhouse, you know, um, I think things like, you know, removing culverts, restoring floodplains, mm-hmm. um, increasing amounts of large wood, increasing channel complexity, all of those are really fundamental things that people could get involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, even things like tree planting, yeah. you know, so For I think sure. it, it it ranges like individuals can go out and work with a local group and do things like tree planting, or they can get involved at a much larger scale and they can end up in places like Salem and Olympia and kind of advocating for their own river, you know, for, for agencies to take actions that they think would benefit their fish. And so I think ideally what people would do is get involved in your home river Mm -hmm. because that's the place you're going to be most comfortable and most knowledgeable. And that way you can develop uh, relationships with the, various managers that work on fish. Yeah. And and I I think we're more successful when we develop those one-on-one relationships with our local staff and become knowledgeable. So, yeah, get involved locally. Yeah. I want to uh, I, I want to get into a little bit on um you know, as far as we talked about, you know, kind of what we do but basins, you know, as far as prioritizing where to focus. You guys you know, you're a big, TU is huge. There's a big area of the whole Pacific Rim. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to hear, you know, you mentioned your dad at the start. And I know your dad has been a big player, like you said, involved in the whole steelhead. You know, can you tell us a little about your dad, like, uh, you know, kind of what you learned from him? Any any lessons that, you know, as you're out there doing your work that, you know, you think of him and he, he kind of brings up to your top of mind? Yeah, I think there's one instance that always sticks out. So my, my dad, um, you know, my dad grew up a, a guy who mostly gear fish because his grandfather, you know, his dad gear fish, right? So he kind of picked up fly fishing on his own and then kind of taught his, his dad even a little bit how to, how to fly fish as a younger kid. So it's interesting, but I always go back to that. 
And this hits on these up and down troughs and cycles. As my dad always told me, he's not, when you're out on the river, you're not just there to catch a fish, right? You're there to do all of these other things. Because I remember a time being like a 12 year old boy. And I think I went three days without hooking a steelhead, watching my dad hook all these steelhead. And I threw a fit one day after I lost a steelhead that I hooked. <laughs> and I threw my rod in the water oh. and had a fit. And how old my were you? Like, how, old, how old were you when you did that? I, I was 12. 12. Yeah. Nice. Right. So 12 years of age. Yeah. Threw the rod in the water. My dad sits me down and says, look, I understand you're mad. You hadn't hooked a steelhead, but he goes, you haven't realized the reason you're really out here isn't just to hook that steelhead, right? You're out here to see the birds, to be alone, you know, to experience nature. And so that's one thing I've always taken from my dad is that if we all as anglers, if our only metric of success is about how many fish we catch or catching a fish in a given day, that that makes it very hard to enjoy being an angler because you can't ride out these troughs when there's not a lot of fish, right? Because your fishing success isn't as good. And I think that explains why we see kind of a depletion in the number of anglers during these poor, poor return years, you know? The number of anglers that we have in really good years tends to be really high. And the number of anglers that I see on the river in these bad years tends to slowly decline. Mm. So I guess I would just, you know, the lesson yeah. from my dad is that write things out, right? The good times and the bad times will always be here. And everything isn't uh, a death knell or writing on the wall for the end of fishing. Uh, we just have to kind of ride through these cycles. And remember that, you know, it's just not always about catching the fish, that there's a lot, a lot of things to learn out there, um, other than just being successful. Yeah, that's an awesome, that's an awesome lesson, awesome, uh, awesome point for uh, everybody to, to take home. Um, yeah, you know, uh, John. I mean, I, and then you know, getting back to that point that I kind of noted there before. So, you know, when you think about, you know, the basins. Uh, in kind of your area, can you talk a little about like where you guys focus and why, you know, as far as prioritizing, uh, can we hit everything or, or are we kind of, are we just focusing on the most important things right now? You know, that's a really good question, Dave. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've struggled with is over, over the you know time that I've done my work is like you said, do you focus on all the watersheds and try and lift them all a little bit at the same time? Or do you, or do you kind of prioritize some watersheds based on some criteria and try and elevate those much higher above the other watersheds and use those as examples, hope, hoping that those examples will uh, motivate people to experiment, you know, mm -hmm. and try and follow that pattern. So I think we've, we've kind of settled on the ladder, which is that we don't think that it's possible to lift every watershed up at the same time equally. And that's for wild steelhead at least. Yeah. And that's because there are places that are degraded so badly that they're unlikely to ever to support really strong populations of wild fish. They might have too many dams on them. They might've had a legacy of, you know, over harvest and fishing and hatcheries. And the population is, you know, not very much wild now, whatever the reason, right? So what we tried to do was prioritize the best remaining wild steelhead rivers that we have left. Rivers that are not just little small places, but that are big, traditionally important steelhead rivers. Places like the Ho, the Salduck, the Bogey, the Skagit, places like the Deschutes in the interior, um, the John Day in the interior, places like the Clearwater and the Salmon in Idaho. And then once we get to the Oregon coast, we got places like uh, the Umpqua 
the Rogue, and then we've got like the Eel and Smith in California, along with the Lost Coast. Mm-hmm. So we haven't went down and drilled into each specific river that we're going to work on in each place yet. But we have a list of about 10 to 15 rivers that we call our gems, right? These are the best places. And we think that uh, it's easier to try and recover and rebuild places that have less damage than it is trying to bring back places that are on the brink of death. Yep. Yep. That's a great, I think that's the, that's a solid way to do it. And as you look up north, um, I can't remember what, it, what is the northernmost basin where you guys have as a priority basin? It's the Skagit. Okay, yeah. so it's the Skagit. So it's the Skagit. So as you go up into Alaska, maybe you can talk. This question has come up a, a few times, just kind of on social and stuff. So if you know, as you go up, the steelhead eventually dissipate. Do you do you know much about the Alaska kind of that life history? Why you know what is the end of the distribution of, of steelhead up there, and, and why is that in Alaska where it where it occurs? Yeah, you know, I know enough to be dangerous, but because I haven't been to, you know, because I'm not an expert on Alaska, I don't know everything about it. Yeah, you might might actually, now that I think about this, you might have said this in the Barbless episode. I think you guys might have chatted about that, right? Um, But uh, yeah, you don't have to go in deep. Maybe just give us your your kind of, maybe your your best guesstimate on what you think. Yeah, you know, I think there's a, I think there's two clear reasons why steelhead kind of disappear throughout much of Alaska. And instead they're kind of replaced by resonant rainbow trout, you know, micas that are not going to the ocean. And most of the steelhead in Alaska seem to dis- disappear once you get to the Aleutian Islands. Okay. And once you turn that corner and get up there into those more northerly cold areas, there are very few steelhead. And I think there are two reasons for it. The first is that steelhead have a really narrow um, range of water temperatures in the oceans that they can uh, that they can actually live in, and all salmon have that, right? Just like in freshwater, they have a range of temperatures that they can grow and do well in. And the ocean's the same thing. So the ocean up there is really cold, um, and that probably makes it more difficult for steelhead to become anadromous because steelhead are not a sockeye or a pink salmon, they do really good in cold ocean temperatures. They tend to prefer slightly warmer water temperatures than many of the salmon species do. So I think cold ocean is one, but I think the big reason is that the the main reason that steelhead or any fish go to the ocean is because it's a response to there not being enough food and habitat and fresh water to achieve the large size they need to achieve and produce the eggs they need to produce with that large size to be successful when they come home and reproduce. So what happens is in Alaska, the, the, in theory, the micas don't need to go to the ocean because the ocean is coming to them in the form of salmon nutrients, <laughs> right? Millions of sockeye and pink and chum are coming back to, to those places. And what they're doing is they're subsidizing. They're providing tremendous amounts of nutrients, you know, and those calories are sufficient enough to allow rainbow trout to grow to the size of steelhead without ever going to the ocean. Yep. And it's really risky to go to the ocean because, you know, you're lucky if 5% of you survive to return home. So rather than take that risk, it's safer to stay in fresh water as long as you can reach a size that's large enough, you know, yeah. um, to be successful. There's no need to go to the ocean. So I think it's, man, they just have a buffet of salmon, eggs, and flesh. That's it. And so, yeah, why? if you have McDonald's and Pizza <laughs> Hut and KFC right next to your house, you're probably not going to be going to the fancy restaurant, right? Exactly. You're going to eat at those places. Yeah. So I think it's. I think that's it. You know, there's just so much food up there. Yeah, yeah. The fish don't have to migrate. 
That makes sense. And we touched on, you know, we talked about the uh, the different basins, and I think that coincided with the, you know, the Wild Steelhead Initiative and what you guys have going. Uh, can you just describe that a little bit to maybe somebody who hasn't heard of it before, or what, you know, what it's all about, what you guys do? Sure. So our Wild Steelhead Initiative, I, I like to call it kind of a pragmatic but hopeful, you know, a, a pragmatic but hopeful initiative to try and restore and rebuild the best last remaining wild steelhead rivers we have. And so the goal for us, of course, is to identify, you know, and prioritize those best last places, you know, the 10 or 15 watersheds we talked about that I kind of call the gems. And so our goal is to, has been over the last five years is to build an army of advocates, which we've got about somewhere between eight to 10,000 people that are following us now and supporting a lot of the work we do. So you've got to build a base of advocates that kind of believe in steelhead, which we've, we've done that. And then we've, we've worked on a number of other things. Like what our main goal is to try and address limiting factors in each of the watersheds. So on the Olympic peninsula, for example, we spent about a year and a half uh, making the case that we needed to eliminate retention, sport harvest retention of wild steelhead up here. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for a year and a half, it was basically meeting with, with agency staff, analyzing data, putting together reports, hitting the social media uh, outlets, and then, you know, trying to build momentum and raise awareness that, you know, on the Olympic Peninsula, our steelhead are in kind of long-term decline in a lot of the rivers, and so it made sense to eliminate wild steelhead harvest on the sport end of things. So that's one of the accomplishments, but uh, yeah. we're also trying to improve how we count fish. So we've gotten sonar units, uh, for example, in the Eel River. We've got a sonar unit in the Eel River, and we've got a sonar in the Smith River in the Umpqua Basin. And uh, we have kind of, you know, the reason we're getting sonar is that steelhead, as we mentioned earlier, kind of the... Uh, you know, the third wheel in the management Mm -hmm. paradigm, they don't get as nearly as much funding as these salmon species do, which means that there's a lack of data on run size for steelhead in general across the West coast. And so one of the things that we think is important, and I kind of call this the big fundamental, like Tim Duncan, right? Is that (laughs) there's just some fundamental things we need in order for us to manage steelhead successfully. And that includes knowing what the run size is, knowing how many people are fishing for them, knowing how many fish are being caught, and then knowing how many fish are actually escaping the fishery to spawn. And if we think if we have those four basic pieces of information, we can successfully manage fish. So we've created a, a, a new model for us recently in that we're trying to work our way across these different last best watersheds and find out what is the limiting factor in each of those places And how can we collaborate with agencies or tribes or other people in those watersheds to raise awareness, to improve funding, to try and answer some of those fundamental things that we need to know? Yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, your seasonal magazine covering fly fishing, fly tying, destinations, how-to, short stories, and more. Here are a few examples of what's getting me fired up in this uh, this winter's edition of the magazine. Check out a story by Deck Hogan on big flies for the OP. Get the inside scoop on uh, from Dave McNeese on the technique of his uh, of dyeing fly tying materials. We also head over to the North Umpqua, the Green River, and hear about the origins of the green butt skunk. Not the skunk, 
the, the green butt skunk from Gary Lewis. Lots of additional content in every episode of the journal, so head over to ftjangler.com and subscribe so you don't miss any of the tips, tricks, and stories in the next issue. Tell them you heard this uh, ad on the podcast, and I'll make sure to head over your way, fluff your pillow, grab a favorite snack, and your favorite beverage, so you're all ready to sit down with the journal, kick back, and read a few great articles. Okay, back to the show. So you guys are focusing it, and, and that's where I mean I think probably some people might think you know salmonids, or maybe they don't, but you know you got coho, chinook, steelhead. I mean, if you improve habitat for coho and things like that, you know, you're going to improve habitat for steel. And I think that's probably true. But there's other things on top of the habitat, right, that you that you can focus that you guys are doing. The work you're doing is helping steelhead specifically. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, a lot of my work is not focused on the habitat issue. I am focused a lot more on the management issues, you know, hatcheries and harvest. And I'll give you an example if habitat was the single and only factor explaining where we had really abundant runs of salmon, the OP should have some of That's the right. best, strongest wild steelhead runs, right? That's but right. the hoe, the queets, and the quinault are all in long-term decline since 1980 and wow. not looking good. So, so you have and up there, those, you have, uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt, I was just kind of want to get my tr- no. thought. So, so basically there, there are no, again, go back to the 4-H's just to keep it simple. There are no, um, you know, there are no, um, the first thing, the dams, right? There's no hydroelectric. Uh, so no that's dam. one big yep. thing. The habitat is uh, pristine, like you said. So what you have, if you break it down to that, you've got, you've got harvesting and you've got hatcheries. Is that pretty much the breakdown that that system? Is that, is that the problem? And that's what you're dealing with. Those are the two issues we saw off the top and don't get me wrong. You know, the habit, you know, mo- the headwaters, all those streams are in the locked in the national park, but some of the watersheds like the Quillute, uh, have a lot of habitat that's outside of the park that's been oh, altered. Gotcha. But if you but if you think about it, it's not altered to the extent that the Oregon coast is. Like the Oregon coast has had Europeans living on it for a really long period of time, right? Since the 1800s, and the first Europeans to arrive up here and kind of settle the west of the OP didn't really happen until the early 1900s, very late 1800s. This was kind of one of the last strongholds for native americans you know one of kind of the final places that europeans arrived to change so we our watersheds haven't been logged four or five times and burned in splash dam like the oregon coast and this is interesting so the habitat is not in perfect shape but it's probably in the best shape of all the coastal watersheds we have in the lower 48 that are remaining and the run sizes are not looking good And our questions are, we don't know if it's a harvest or a hatchery issue, but we believe we need to experiment in turning the dials on those two factors if we want to truly um, figure out what is happening with the steelhead. And I think that's important because if I look at numbers of steelhead on the Oregon coast, where there is essentially almost no harvest and uh, those pop and, 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 experiencing far worse habitat it appears to be there's far more steelhead on the oregon coast than we have on the washington coast hmm. um which is striking yeah that is right? interesting think it, of that and isn't there is there still you know typically with sam just salmonids in general as you start from mexico and work your way up north the, the runs kind of get larger but but is that not the case for steelhead as you go up the the pacific you know the pacific coast yeah, it's not like what's strange is that Northern California and the Oregon coast actually seem to be doing better than most of Washington is. Hmm. And, um, 
you know, Washington's also notable because we have the largest hatchery infrastructure of any country in the world, let alone a state. Uh, Wow. And and you have the whole, like you mentioned, the Skagit. I mean, you've got Seattle and that, all the stuff going on up there, which is, well, you have a lot of water too. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, Washington is pretty diverse, right? I mean, it's got all sorts of different habitat types. It's diverse. And, you know, even though you're right, you know, Puget Sound is an issue, but I go back to this, you know, there's been a lot of talk about pollution in Puget Sound, but all I ask is that people remember the full history of a place like Puget Sound and even the Columbia, because from the 1920s, 30s and 40s and 50s, when Puget Sound was producing massive runs of salmon, they had literally hundreds of pulp mills and, you know, other types of, you know, industrial mills along that were taking water out of the sound and then pumping unfiltered, polluted, you know, byproduct right back into the sound, right? We got the, the Clean Water Act with Nixon in the early 70s, and things started to clean up after that. Yep. But it's notable that the Puget Sound was likely more polluted back then than it is now in terms of those types of pollutants, right? Uh, and it was still producing large numbers of salmon. Now, I think the pollutants are a little different nowadays. The pollutants that we're seeing in fish are like cocaine and, uh, you know, (laughs) depression medication and, you know, uh, pregnant, you know, it's like, you know, the pill it's crazy, right? The, all of these, all of these other medicines that humans take that apparently are not broken down are being delivered to fish. So I always wonder if, Yep. This weather and being facetious, but what's a steelhead like on cocaine? You know, when that little thing gets a little. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we were just talking about this out. In the uh, we saw some mushrooms were out on a hike this weekend, and we were like, "Oh my god!" A lot of those amanitas and all these these hallucinogenic mushrooms out there are eating. Obviously, the animals are eating them, right? So there's something. Oh, yeah. said, there's something to be said about it. I think those animals are probably not much different than humans. You know, they they like to get their little high or whatever as well. <laughs> I, I think you're right. My dad had this story when he first came back from Russia and he was in Kanchekka for the first time in 1992. And he was over there and he said that the reindeer herders were always frustrated because they would have these huge herds of reindeer, you know, hundreds to thousands, thousands of animals. And that those reindeer would actively seek out the Amanita field. And as oh, soon right. as they find that, they would just eat those mushrooms and stay there for days on end, rolling around high. And, and the herders were so mad because uh, they wouldn't listen. You know, the reindeer were like, ah, I'm just, <laughs> Screw that. I'm just high out here in Russia. I'm not going to do anything else. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, a little bit ago about the sonar, and uh, it, which is pretty interesting. You have going. Can you talk about the difference between, I mean, typically, I guess in the past, red counts for steelhead have been used. Can you talk about the difference between sonar and red, red counts and, you know, the difference in the data we get out of those? Sure, sure. And so red counts, you know, reds are basically the nest that a salmon or a steelhead digs in the river. And because they turn over the gravel, we can see where they spawn the reds. And so traditionally, we've estimated run sizes based on counting the reds. But the number of reds only tells us how many fish escaped the fishery. It doesn't tell us how many entered the river. And so because there is some mortality from that, it could be harvest, it could be natural, you know, whatever it is, but there's some mortality between the number of fish that enter the river and then the number that ultimately spawns. So red counts give you a couple of really good pieces of information. How many fish spawned, what time did they spawn, and where did they spawn? And that information is really Hmm. irreplaceable with any other method. So red counts are really important. But what we're seeing now is that, you know, Alaska has used sonar for a long time. 
And the, and the very valuable thing about sonar is it gives you a front-end piece of information like a dam. How many fish are actually entering the river? And uh, the other benefit, so that, that allows yeah. you to generate a run size estimate without having to guess how many fish might have died naturally or without dealing with harvest records from escapement to run size, right? So that right. gives you the best possible measure of run size. And like any method, it has limitations, of course, but it also provides you in-season, real-time updates on run size. So if your run is, if you've set a forecast and you're allowed to harvest X amount of fish, well, if you end up with a run size that's bigger or smaller than you thought, you can alter those predictions in real time like Alaska does. All right. And that's really nice because... Most of our salmon fisheries that occur, we make a preseason run forecast, and then we harvest, and then we don't know if we over-harvested until the end of the season. Yeah. And uh, given that steelhead runs are not doing as well as we would like in all of our very best watersheds, we just think it's best to collect the best information possible. So we don't want red counts to go away. We want to actually combine red counts with sonar. And, and gotcha. try and get a better sense of how many fish enter the river, when do they enter, and then we can combine that and analyze when and where they spawn. But it would also, up here on the OP, it would give us a chance to have real-time evaluation during the run. Gotcha. Okay. And I, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, again, estimating, you know, numbers and populations and, and things like that. You know, if you think about, again, we've had, we're kind of getting this dip. It's, it's 2019. And, you know, I guess it's been, it's been quite a while since we were talking about the early nineties. And if you had to give your best, uh, you know, guesstimate again on when we're going to see that back, that next big dip after we recover from this one, do you have any idea? I mean, could you even I, take a if, stab at that? <laughs> you know, I'll take a stab because you're a good man. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're, we're just having fun here. Yeah, and totally. Don't scientifically hold my toes to fire. Yeah. But if I look at this, my hunch is we're looking another five to six years down the road before we begin to crawl out of this thing. Yeah. Um, yep. But then you're talking, you know, another decade down the road and you're probably going to have another big run. Yeah. Um, and probably experience the two thousands again. And my concern is that, well, what I don't want to see is the, what I'm concerned about moving forward is the peaks could get lower and the troughs could get deeper. Mm. And that appears to be happening in the Columbia. And that's what would worry me because we talked earlier about, is there a long-term trend here, you know? Yeah. And it makes it hard in the Columbia to figure it out because of all the hatchery fish that were unmarked in the seventies and eighties and even part of the nineties. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a, this trough lasting another three to six years and then crawling out of it at some point during that same time. And then you're looking, you know, another eight to 10 years down the road before you finally see the first reemergence of strong returns again. Exactly. Uh, There you go. So we're going to be, uh, we're going to be old men, uh, potentially (laughs) the kids, the kids are going to be, well, it's funny because my dad, my dad's probably similar to, you know, I don't know if he's similar, but you know, he talks about how he's going to be gone. You know, he, he's not going to be able to wait for the runs to recover. And I think he might, you know, it's possibly he might be right in this situation. Um, obviously you never know. And these are, you know, like you said, we're just jokingly, you know, and that's might be a, a guesstimate, but no, I think, I think what it gives you, John, you know, you give it perspective. I think it's important. It's just like when you ask a guide, a steelhead guide, what's the most important thing. And they always say balance expectations of, of your client, you know, and I think this is a good example of the same thing, you know, letting people know, you know what, it's going to take a little while. And same thing with habitat, you know, restoration and recovery, right? 
I agree. And I think, you know, we talked about this earlier is kind of where, how do you, how do you get hope or, you know, what's the, the runs do look bad across the Pacific Rim this year, but I always remind people, you're right. They will come out of this. They might not come out of it as strong as they did in the two thousands, but they will. And I always go back, are there places that we can look to for hope? And I say, yeah, because, you know, this past summer, we worked with a lot of agencies, including the National Park and NIMS and the Lower Elwha Tribe. And we did a really big survey of the Elwha River, you know, to count summer steelhead uh, that are returning to the Elwha in numbers that are shocking to us. So before the dams came out in the Elwha, I never counted more than one or two summer steelhead in the lower five miles of the Elwha River in any given summer. And I had three summers to snorkel that river before the dams came out. And here we are, the summer steelhead, of course, are most likely to be living up above the second dam. And the second dam, Glines Canyon, has only been fully passable for four years. Hmm. In those four years, the population of fish above glines went from zero because there were none above those dams to now, last year we counted 354 wild summer steelhead in the Elwha River in our snorkel survey. The year before it was 250. Wow. And that's just the raw snorkel survey number. That is not even, we did mark recite. So in other words, we have the ability to then generate a population estimate. And the huh. guess right now is somewhere between 700 to 1,000 fish. Wow. Now, I want to put this in perspective. In some of the worst ocean conditions that we have experienced in our lifetime, we went from almost almost extinction in the Elwha to having upwards of 700 to 1,000 steelhead in three to four years. And we don't – I, you know – Ask some questions. I'm sure, you know, we don't know where they're coming from yet, but we're looking for that. We assume that they're probably coming from rainbow trout yeah, that were landlocked above the dams. Oh, oh, um, that's the question, yeah. And, yeah, and the reason we think this is it and not strain is that this is now the single largest population of summer steelhead in all of Puget Sound and the OP. Jeez, that's amazing. So it's not even close. That's like we amazing. were talking earlier, the Kalawa River is probably peaking at around 300 wild steelhead in its very best year for summer runs. The Ho probably peaks about 250. The Queets might get up to 250. Those are the very best years, right? Wow. Those are like our early 2000s. So in the worst of years, you're lucky if the Ho had probably 70 summer steelhead last year. Huh. And the Elwha's here at this number, which is shocking and stunning. So I do say to people, like you, you know, like my dad has said the same thing. I'm not going to get to experience the next upturn in steelhead. And he's right. And my dad and grandpa always told me the same thing as a boy, which is that you're born 40 years too late. You know <laughs> what I mean? The fishing was so good. But That's this right. is one case where we can tell our kids or somebody's kids that you're going to have better fishing in 30 years than your grandfather had on yeah. the Elwha. And that's because dams are coming out. So I always want to highlight to people that if you want big responses from fish, it will take big actions to get them there. Yeah. You can't just nibble around the edges of the cookie to get there. You know, you've got to remove dams. You've got to do big experiments. That includes altering how we use hatcheries, how many fish are planted, and altering how we harvest, and continue to invest in the habitat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's, a, I don't, yeah, yeah. it's a good point. I, I think I, you just got me, you know, and you said dams again. I think we could we could probably have spent a whole uh, hour or two hours just talking about dams. I, You know, obviously we're not going to get there, but the Snake River, you know, the four lower snake dams is a good example of, you know, I mean, I think 
those, I mean, it's been at least 30 years where those have been a hot topic and, uh, you know, and they're still in there. Obviously there's politics involved, but do you, do you feel that, you know, we're any closer to, to maybe, I mean, cause I think a lot of people talk about those things as being a big part of, of the recovery. Right. And do you see those uh, any closer than they were maybe 30 years ago to coming out? I do. And, you know, I have some hope there um, based on what we're seeing in the L1. I think this hints at things is that when you're trying to remove four dams at that scale and do it blindly without any examples before it, it's very hard to do because people are unsure that there's going to be any benefit. And I think the LWA is showing that there will, there can be a benefit much faster than we anticipated. I do think we're closer. And I think the key to getting out the snake dams is, is making sure that we address the concerns of the farmers and the other people that are using the water and moving the grain back and forth. Like literally the common denominator here is that this can't just be an action that's taken by a bunch of conservationists. It has to be a whole kit and caboodle together, which means that finding ways to get farmers their water so they don't have to pay anymore, so they have water when they need it, and finding ways to get the grain back and forth so that Lewiston and Clarkson remain whole. Um, yep. And I would like to think as humans, we're pretty damn creative and smart. For and sure. I think we're getting closer to making that happen. For sure. That's you know, that's a good good point as well. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about the snorkeling and obviously rainforest. We mentioned at the start, um, you know, rainforest uh, steel on Instagram is your handle and you've got all sorts of great, you know, videos and clips of fish, you know, what is, uh, you know, snorkeling, what, what does it teach you? What, what's the biggest thing you, you learn when you're out there snorkeling streams and taking videos and, and, and photos? Well, I think the first thing it taught me when I first got underwater was, Oh my God, look how many fish are under there. Which fish are the best at hiding out of the, if you had to go to the stream, say your, your top four, I mean, what, what are the species you usually, I mean, Chinook, steelhead, uh, cutthroat, do you see any other species? I guess, um, coho. Yeah, we see them all, and I, I got to say that the best hiders are steelhead. You know, no it's kidding. Not better than close. cutthroat. Better yeah. than cutthroat. Better, better than cutthroat. And I think, I think there's a little trade-off here in that the juvenile, that the steelhead and cutthroat are both really good hiders. The third place I'd give to bull trout. Oh right. Um, bull trout love to hide under rocks, and it's really common for me. So I, I, I always rate my fish on this. If I can swim down the river and I can pull them out, if I can grab an adult by its tail because they're trying to hide from me and pull them out, which is pretty common. Yeah. And the fish that I always can catch by hand are adult steelhead and bull trout. And so it's common almost about every fifth survey I do, there's a fish that I could pull out by its tail and hold it up to the water and show it to my friend on bank who's recording my numbers. There you go. There you and go. There are, there's steelhead and bullies now. The cutthroat, I think you're right in that they do hide. But what I see with a lot of our cutthroat up here is that they're basically the top predator in most of our rain-fed streams. So they're kind of like a lion. They don't feel much right. reason to hide. They feel like they're, yeah, they feel like they're the big, big dude on campus. Yeah. Uh, yep. Gotcha. But yeah, those, so the first thing is just how many fish are under there. And the, and the second thing is just that each fish does seem to have, there are little bits of per, things that we would call personality as humans, right? <laughs> And I'm going to give you my favorite example. I have chickens and a dog and my, and my chickens, as soon as I walk out the front door of my house, they start squawking because they want a snack, right? Yeah. And if they don't get a snack, they, they squawk and squawk until my dog goes over and barks him and tells him to shut up. Now, one of the first years I moved up to the OP, I was trying to, I was looking at a bunch of juvenile coho, 
steelhead, and there were three cutthroat about 10 inches to 12 inches holding at the very end. So what happens when I start feeding the fish, you know, you start brushing off the algae on the rocks and the fish form a conga line. Like the very smallest fish are coho and zero H steelhead. And they're right up at the front because they're so little, they're going to take every risk to get as much food as they can because they're tiny. And then the biggest fish like the cutthroat at the very end, because they've already, they need food, but it's more of a luxury for them. They're already pretty big and they understand that I could probably eat them. (laughs) But it was funny after, after I kept, and then I was peeling out the case caddis and feeding periwinkles to them. And, and after I did this for about 20 minutes, one of the cutthroat came up from the very back end and swam right up to my mask and hit the front of my mask. And then it swam back. And about a minute later, he hit my hand. About eight minutes later, after I dropped off the last periwinkle I had in my hand, it went down to the bottom of the river and grabbed a maple leaf and put it in its mouth and shook it and then spit it out in front of me. Wow. This fish was clearly, at least in my basic human mind, like a dog that wanted one of the pieces of food that I was giving the other ones, right? And it it went through a number of shenanigans that were no, not dissimilar to what my chickens do. So it was interesting. I eventually gave that one fish a periwinkle and it swam away and left the whole bunch. (laughs) So there's more in their little brains and it's not like, you know what I mean? We're humans, we're large mammals, but you know, personality, a little bit of personality goes a long way, like Samuel Jackson said, right? right? And so uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always go back that, you know, each of those little fish in there, sometimes they show you a little bit of personality. And in my mind, it's fun to interpret that as, damn, that thing was hungry, but he was just tired of waiting in line. God, that's amazing. So, so in those fish, when you're snorkeling, are you, for the most part, trying to get, you know, estimates on, you know, population size or is this this more kind of just um kind of anecdotal stuff with, with the stuff you do that's a good question i would say it used to be for my job probably half to three quarters of my snorkeling was just for my job because i was snorkeling a lot of miles every day to do population estimates and distribution estimates and and of course as you you know you know, progress in your professional career, you, you sometimes do less field work. And I would say there's a little bit of that with me professionally. I do a lot more analysis and data work now, not as much field work, which means that probably 80% of my snorkeling now is free time stuff. You know, I have to go make time to get out in the river and I do collect my own data. So I go out and do estimates of how many fish are there, but now probably about 70% of my snorkeling now is just to try and get underwater photographs and observe them, Mm -hmm. you know, um, trying to get a, find a means of sharing that with the average person who won't be underwater. Yeah. That's why it's great. That's why your Instagram feed is so nice. Yeah. If you just, just took pictures and the great thing about what you do is you do a little, you know, most of the time, a nice summary of, of what you're seeing. And, and that's, that's why your, your Instagram feed is so, is so great. You know, it's a, you do a good job at it. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, I think it's, I, I, as a boy, I always loved those things where you had a picture in a book and then you had a little caption underneath that gave you a little slice of it. And so I, I think that even though a lot of the younger generation doesn't, you know, enjoy reading things that are, that are more than five or 600 words. I think that, you know, you can, there are still those little tiny niches where you can kind of draw people in, you know, with a pretty picture and, and maybe some funny writing. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Hey, uh, John, we're going to get out of here pretty quick. I just had a couple more questions I wanted to hit you with before we get out of here. And one of them comes from um, an email I got from one of the listeners, uh, Josh Brown. And he, and maybe you can just do, this is a big, you know, again, this is another hour long answer you could give, but you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but uh, the question he asks is, how do you approach um, rivers on the decline? Is there a little snippet, maybe a, a top, uh, you know, to-do list when you think of that? You know, you have this this river that's on the decline. You know, is that something you could break out in, in a short little summary here? Yeah, and do you, do you mean, um, maybe I should ask, do you yeah. think the person is, ref- Josh is ma- meaning like, how, would you fish that river or is it like, would you get involved in conservation? Which of those? Yeah, you- that's a good question. I was taking it as conservation, like the rivers, and I think that's yeah. what he meant. The river's on decline, you know, it's going downhill, like we said, one, in, in one of these rivers. And, you know, how do you approach it as maybe as part of your TU job or just in, in general? Well, that's a great question. The first thing when I see a decline and a population is in decline that I really care about is I want to know why. And unfortunately for steelhead, we often can't determine why because we don't have the type of data that we have on a lot of salmon species. So it's harder to diagnose. Mm-hmm. If there's a population in decline and saying that's the case, which is you, you might not know why, you know, the first thing I want to do again is just try and find somebody or a group locally that is involved in the watershed that I care about so that I can become more educated on the topic. And for me, that's been a really common experience in the TU job because I'm very familiar with Washington and Oregon, but I'm not nearly as familiar with all the Idaho work, the Alaska work and the California work, you know? So a lot of my job has been going into places where there are populations in decline and it takes me uh, a year or two to kind of get up to speed. Mm -hmm. on the scientific literature in each of those places. So I would remind people not to get overly, um, you know, doom and gloom. Don't think that it's just going to extinction because these things will come back and go up and down. Mm -hmm. And before you think you know what the problem is, educate yourself because the agency staff and the other people working in those basins will, even if you disagree with them, will come to have much more respect for you as long as you get educated on the topic. Yeah. And that might involve reaching out to people like me or other conservation groups that are working in the basin. Uh, so, yeah, don't feel as though it's all going to hell in a handbasket right away because it will turn around a little bit eventually. These are the peaks and troughs. And yeah. two is just get educated so you know what you're doing um, is going to going to be useful. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. And and, uh, well, maybe you could talk a little about your, uh, you know, before we get out of here, your, uh, your new podcast you got coming up. Is that, is that true that you have a, a new podcast? Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this is great. You know, I mean, I found myself doing podcasts with people and really enjoying who I'm talking to. And so, uh, Chad and Nick, uh, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna, who run the Barbless podcast reached out to me and we did a podcast and they said, you know, we liked what you did. Would you, you know, kind of be interested in doing your own podcast? And I said, yeah, that would be pretty cool. So we talked about it and I felt like it was kind of a natural extension from the social media stuff I've been doing, right? Like, is there an avenue to get information out there to the, to anglers and citizens, but also talk about fishing and not make conservation such a a nasty bite of, of kind of humble pie, you know, because I often think that conservation is like, ah, we can't fish. We can't do anything. We've just got to take our, you know, but I think there are, you know, so trying to talk to people about ways to kind of fish the recovery and that conservation isn't always a negative, 
um, yeah. highlighting the cool science. You know, I'm excited about it. A little off track there, but yeah, I, I do want to yeah just reach out to people and and provide them information to me that is as close to unbiased as it can be. Yeah, um, I think it's great. Yeah. I, th- I think you're you know when I heard about it because like I said I've t- I know Chad and Nick a little bit here and. I mean, it's the perfect fit because you're the, you know, just the conversation we had, there's so many topics we didn't even touch on today, you know, and there's a ton of stuff that I'm looking forward to when you come out with this, listening to you dig into it more. And I I hope, you know, I'll even give you some feedback as far as, you know, here's a topic, maybe, you know, today, you know, things things like, here's a good example that we're not going to cover right today. Things like, you know, barb versus barbless. I mean, these are some of a little, you know, uh, kind of whatever you want to say, a little bit heated topics, but you know, there's other things we didn't talk about, you know, the keep them wet thing, right? Uh, barometric pressure environment. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's just super interesting and some of it's, some of it's kind of heated, but, but that's okay. Right. It, it seems like, it seems like you're the guy that's, that's good at keeping a level head, right? Yeah. I'd like to think that, you know, I mean, we all get emotional inside, right? And some of this does destroy me, but ultimately I think that at the end of the day, the the people that I always responded to the best and learned from the best were people that really did have an emotional, they cared, but they didn't always present it in a way that was just completely like my way or the highway, right? Like I know best. And I don't think, yeah, I think you're right. You cannot be too emotionally based Mm -hmm. in a lot of these things. I mean, at least in the science, like, my God, we all know how excited we get with steelhead or fishing for, you know what I mean? Some days you're out there on the water. It's just remarkable. But, um, I think, and I always like to put like, what makes me excited about science is learning new things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I always look at it like we're probably never going to be at the perfect place to manage these fish, given all the societal challenges and the human population, everything else. But if we can continue to do science that finds ways to help explain the problems to humans better, that's what gets me excited, you know, is that's cool. it's not all the, yeah, the fancy modeling, and I love to model, we do all these things, but, you know, yeah. it's the cool research, you know what I mean? The little things, like, I think I just didn't, did one on spotting patterns in fish, you know, and you're like, wow, oh, yeah. it's just fun to, it's just fun to learn about it, so, yeah. Like identifying uh, fish, individual fish by the spotting pattern sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. And, and like fish farms now are trying to make their Atlantic salmon spotting patterns resemble, more closely resemble that of wild Atlantic salmon. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so even though the, the outcome of the research has no application in my world, it's really interesting because that's not something, it's like trying to understand why some salmon are densely spotted and why others are more sparsely spotted. And I mean, it's kind of this off, off topic thing that a lot of us wouldn't think about, but somebody, you know, I had people reaching out to me on Instagram going, why do I occasionally catch a steelhead that has very few spots on it? Can you explain that? So it took me like a year. I had a general sense of it, but you have to dig into the literature to make sure you're right. Because the last time I'd written on that topic was like a decade ago and right. a decade in science world is like, no you know, kidding. millennia. So what, what is the, yeah, uh, yeah. What, what is the short uh, summary of, of why that's the case? The short summary appears to be, and I caution that this is preliminary work. It's a few done, but it looks like fish that have fewer spots have, um, a poor stress response that there's an underlying mechanism to why you might have steelhead why why very few steelhead are likely to have few spots is because in general fish that have more spots and denser spots have what they call a more proactive stress response and my comparison is this is that 
my red-haired friends that go out in the sun on the Deschutes and hang out at South Junction for a day have to wear every ounce of clothing possible because if they're out in that sun without any of that stuff, yeah. they burn, right? They, they get a bad sunburn. And I'm different. I kind of gradually get tan over the course of the summer rather than burn. And so a human that, you know, like the red-haired friend I have, that's called a reactive stress response. Your body, your skin burns, and that causes your your body to need to kind of go into recovery mode, right? Anybody who's had a bad sunburn, you're not going to go hike 15 miles. You're not going to go get in a fight with a Viking invader. You're not going to be out harvesting animals. You're in bad shape for a couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. After one of those sunburns. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you gradually get tan and don't sunburn right away, that's called a proactive stress response. So my point is that when a fish has a lot of spots, it's like the person who gradually tans. And when a fish doesn't have a lot of spots, it's kind of like the red-haired, fair-skinned person who burns quickly. And the stress response that they get is not just in response to uh, sunlight hitting them. It's in relation to a lot of other things in their life. So it's likely that the spots themselves are not the mechanism that's telling them about stress in the fish. They just go along for the ride. You know, they're kind of a symptom of an overarching stress response that the fish might have in its body. And that is some fish are likely to respond to stress by dealing with it in a proactive way. And some are just going to react and then have to recover. And so interesting. is that the leopard, you know, what about when you look at the leopard uh, rainbows up in Alaska, is that a, a different deal up there? You know, it could be, but I think it's just that it's really rare to see fish with very few spots. So, yeah. you know, the spotting pattern can be controlled by food, by genetics. There's a million things. But I think the overarching point is that most of our rainbow trout have quite a few spots. Yeah, they do. It's really, but when you, you know, you've lived in Oregon. Oh, if yeah. you go to eastern Oregon and small, some of those small creeks, it's more common. Or some of those, uh, some of those, uh, you know, ponds that have been planted with those hatchery rainbow. Uh-huh. Some of those fish just seem to have very few spots. Yep. So, um, huh. you know, I'm, I'm reticent to, to make any big claim, but, oh, yeah. oh, you know, it's just, it's, yeah. just, it's just kind of the fun stuff in fish is that just trying to explain why fish look the way they do and do the way they do. And, and some of it has no management implication. That's cool. Uh, that's cool. Well, uh, we're going to get out of here pretty quick. Before we do, I got a, just my typical little rapid fire round. I usually started off with the, uh, the 222, which is, uh, and we haven't talked to anything about Roy steelhead fishing, which is kind of funny, right? Because we both love steelhead fishing, right. but, um, you know, there's plenty of episodes and past episodes on this podcast, uh, steelhead, but with the 222, I just want to see if I can get maybe your top two flies, top two tips and top two resources for steelhead. And if you think about it, just think of, say, let's talk about the Olympic Peninsula, right? Because that's kind of your, you know, your home water up there. Do you have a couple of flies that are your go-to flies you put on there? I do, you know, and I break them down some in the winter. Summer steelhead fly, my favorite is always a steelhead caddis on the surface. Oh, yeah. And so if I, I'm anywhere, you know, I, I have to shift to a bomber or something larger up on the Dean and, mm-hmm. and some of the Skeena, but that, that, that steelhead caddis. And in the winter, I just basically use a string leech yeah. and, uh, you know, various colors and forms. And maybe I change them slightly over the past 20 years, but it's kind of been the same, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so I love, I love the little, you know, I love that rabbit. I like yeah. that. Do you, do you uh, find, uh, with coloration, I mean, obviously black and purple and all are, are good colors. Do you find there's anything with that blue? We did a little bit. I had Ed Angle on in a past episode and we had a, we were talking about trout fishing, but he said there was some studies that, 
you know, he had read where the biologist had found blue was a key on these fish taking like blue eggs. Have you heard anything about that? You know, I haven't read that study. I know that, you know, there's, you know, different parts of the color wheel, right, disappear from the water column as you go deeper. And so that would be, I would have to look on that. That would be interesting. I can tell you that when I first moved to the OP, all my first flies were, you know, lots of silver doctor blue in them. And that was because I, I, the, the one, so here's a tip is as soon as a color combo comes into fancy with anglers, I drop it from my box. Oh, there you go. Because everybody's using it, right? Yep. And the last thing I want is a fish to see my fly and go, dude, <laughs> eight other Larrys just swing right. that same colored thing right in front of me. And there's a little story in that. So when I first moved up here, rather, you know, black, of course, right? Like when I first moved up here, it was, it was, that was 1997, which means we're still using three and four-out hooks and tying large orange GPs and black GPs and winner's hopes. And that stimulate, you know, the, uh, the, the pattern, what's the, uh, yeah, it's the traditional the headboard. Stuff. Uh, oh, the, yeah. The, the, and then the, the intruder comes around, right. And then people are looking at that and I'm like, ah, the intruder didn't really fit what I was looking for. It still had that long shank on it. And I didn't like that. I wanted more wiggle. So I like string leeches. Uh, but I started a lot of that Kingfisher blue. And then about eight to seven years ago, more people went from blue because originally most people were using purple, right. And pink and uh orange and so i eschewed all those colors and went to blue and now that more people use blue i've largely i don't have nearly as much blue in my box as i used to so my tip for people is do not use the same colors other people use yeah that's a good tip what, what would be another tip you have for first winter steelhead the the other tip i would have is set the hook most people there's a big argument over this right do you set the hook when the fish is pulled or do you not in summer runs summer runs are different you know, those fish often, water temperature's warmer. They're going to pull a few clicks off the reel and set the hook themselves. In the winter, a steelhead is not as active, and I set that hook really hard 95% of the time. Uh, so change your colors up to what other people aren't using, and don't be afraid to set the hook really hard. Gotcha. And can you talk a little about your book? I know you've, you've written uh, at least one book, and I think one with your dad uh, here not too far off, right? Yeah, yeah, we had, you know, I've written a couple book chapters and some, you know, two books, but the one with my dad was called uh, May the Rivers Never Sleep, and, you know, my dad's background in conservation largely was inspired by Roderick Hag Brown, who was an amazing fly angler and author up in British Columbia, and he wrote a book called uh, A River Never Sleeps, and the concept is the river, a river never sleeps basically means that yeah, sure, you know, metaphorically, the river has is, is always making noise as it goes downstream, but that's not the real crux of it. The real crux is that a river is only as alive as all the fish and animals that live in and around it, right? And so the water itself is great, and, um, but if we, wanna, if we want to truly experience the lives of rivers, it depends on having those places full of fish and animals. And so what we talked about in May the Rivers Never Sleep is that We all have a sense of the calendar, like today is December 10th, right, 2019. But December 10th doesn't mean anything to me in and of itself. What this means to me is that it's the beginning of winter steelhead season. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) our, our book is basically a chronology of a year in the life of those of us that come to find rivers as our places of home. They're like our church to us. 
And so I don't think of Sunday morning as going to church. I think of Sunday morning as going out to the river. And if that Sunday morning happens in January, it's for winter steelhead. If it happens in early November, it's for coho. And if it happens in the summer, it's for trout. Uh, and so just taking people along a journey of what rivers mean to those of us that have, have lived along them most of our days. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to, to that book. And and do you have another resource if you think about whether steelhead fishing book magazine resource, something that you, you know, it could be steelhead fishing or conservation, anything that comes to mind that you would recommend for people? Yeah, you know, for me, I was like a little bit of history. So I would suggest people, uh, you know, I like Sean Gallagher's new book called Wild Steelhead. He's got volumes one and two, and I think he gives you a good perspective on some of the steelheading history and going around, you know, what we once had and what we didn't have. But I also like to give, uh, you know, people a sense of, I don't know if if hope is the right term, um, mm-hmm. but but maybe just a little bit more about how to technically fish. And I do think, you know, either Trey Combs's book, yeah. you know, his legacy of books are really good resources and the book by Deck Hogan yep. uh, that was put out is a very good one. So I like the balance. Like I like Sean Gallagher's book because it's more about the romance of steelheading, you know, and the lives of us. And those other two books are more or less, you know, kind of how are you going to tactfully approach a steelhead situation? So. Yeah. I always go back to, there's a lot of good information in books, people, and books aren't as common <laughs> yeah, as nowadays, right. but, but I guarantee you that everybody that's writing a blog, post, a blog post or that does a podcast or does Instagram like I do, people like me, we stand on the shoulders of those other folks. You're right. So um, it's, we've all recreated the wheel. Yeah, go back and read some of that. It's really fun, and it's good to learn about. Uh, so, yeah, I think yeah. that's it. Those are, those are great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Deck. Uh, I had Deck on in a past episode as well, and I remember it was we kept, we had a laugh too because he kept saying uh, I was asking him questions about steelhead fishing, and he kept, he kept saying, "Well, it, it's it's in the book, you know, it's in his book." You know, passion for steelhead. So that is that is a good one. Um, all right, John. Well, I'm going to let you get out of here. I you know uh, we'll have to you know when you get your podcast going, I would love to. Uh, you got to. Yeah. I'd love to have you on. Yeah, man. Hey, I'll, I've got a bunch of, um, I've got a, well, I, I've mentioned this a lot, but you know, I've, I've got into destination and some other seasons, but yeah, the first 30 or so episodes are all steelhead and, you know, I've definitely learned a lot, you know, the last couple of years here. So yeah, yeah. Let's keep in touch on it. And when that comes out, man, I'll definitely, definitely share the word because I think it's going to be, if it's anything like your Instagram, it's going to be a huge resource for people and, and inspiration, right? That's, that's the big thing. Um, before I let you get out here, anything in the next uh, six months, six, 12 months that you have new either with TU or, you know, um, anything you want to let us know? Well, pretty soon we'll, we're, we're going to have a couple things come out, which is one, we're going to have a movie uh, that Shane Anderson is going to, that is making on the Elwall summer steelhead surveys. Oh, we wow. did. So that should, that should be out in about a, a, you know, a few weeks to a month. And uh, I also think that, you know, we're starting to dive into that time to try and figure out how to work on steelhead in the Columbia river basin. And we've been talking a little bit with some folks at ODFW, you know, Ian Tatum, oh, yeah. I think there. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ian, Ian Tatum, his, uh, my, oh, sorry to interrupt again, I have to throw this one in there. Oh, yeah. Ian, Ian Tatum, his, uh, I love this one because his dad, Mr. Tatum, he, he was my high school, uh, my favorite high school teacher, which is hilarious. Oh, no way. They, I mean, I love Ian so much, oh, right? Like, and, and meeting you is the same thing. Like, we're all Northwest boys, yeah, right? We all grew up here and all have that. It's our home. So Ian is working on a project in the John Day, and I don't want to give too much into this because there will be more, but they've got a grad student who's going to try and do some acoustic tagging. Nice. 
to figure out why so many John Day steel had are actually passing the John Day mouth and then going up to McNary, there you, go. you know, past McNary. So we, I think we, we've been talking a little bit with, uh, Hazel shop, you yep. know, Alex there yeah. at the shoots angler. And I think, um, Alex, if you hear this before I've gotten a hold of you, don't, don't be shocked. I'll be reaching out to you today or tomorrow. <laughs> nice. But we're going to look for a way to partner with, with those folks to do some fundraising to try and get more radio tags out um, for Ian and the grad student to use in the John Day. There you go. So, there you um, go. Yeah. I just think people keep an eye out on social media at Wild Steel Headers United or you know, and then also pay attention to the Shoots Angler page because at some point here in the next couple months, we're going to be doing some fundraising for those fish. Perfect. Perfect. No, this has been good, John. I think we're in the on the same track here, and uh, I'll, I'll definitely when this uh, when I get ready to throw this one out there. Obviously, I'm gonna put uh, kind of get links to everything we talked about, and hopefully that'll be, include maybe uh, your podcast in there that we can get that. All right. <laughs> so hey, I th- hope so, man. That should be coming soon. It's gonna be fun. All right, John. Well, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate your. Uh, you know, I think like I said before, the inspiration, man. I love the fact that you're an opt- optimistic person. You know what I mean? I think there are people that are the opposite and you know it seems like you know the way you do it is the way kind of more people should do it because even though like you said it gets a little dim and dark there's still a light on the other side isn't there there's hope man you know and we have to have it and i can't i can tell you as a person i go down those same dark tunnels as everybody else but at the end of the day to have hope you have to seek places out that have hope and get out there and see it you know we, we we're not going to be successful if we don't have the hope That's i right. think you're right man all right good well, we'll talk to you soon Thank you. Bye, Dave. All right. See you, John. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 117. Uh, a couple of quick notes I want to shout out before we uh, leave today. If you haven't seen the resources page, head over to wetflyswing.com slash resources to see all the products recommended by guests from the show and some of the top products that I recommend. And one of those uh, products there at the top is Echo Fly Rods. Again, I want to give a shout out. Head over to echo, uh, wetflyswing.com slash echo, that's E-C-H-O, to find out which rod I recommend for steelhead if you're getting started. This will take you to another partner shop in the gorge where you can grab a new rod and support our local community. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.